I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we'll speak with Gerald McGuinn about the role of cholesterol-lowering medications in age-related macular degeneration. Statins do a lot of different things. Uh, Among them is reducing serum cholesterol levels. They also have anti-inflammatory properties. They have a variety of systemic effects. We'll also speak with Erwin Siegel about contact lens fitting after keratorefractive surgery. We'll hear the interviews in a minute. First this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of a scene from here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. Statins are a class of medication used to reduce low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, cholesterol levels. One of the medications in this class, Lipitor, is the world's top-selling drug. We know that elevated serum LDL is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke. Statins have been shown to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Recently, interest has emerged in investigating the relationship between statin use and age-related macular degeneration. The largest study investigating this relationship has just been published in this month's Ophthalmology Journal. My next guest, Gerald McGuinn, is the first author of the paper, The Use of Cholesterol-Lowering Medications and Age-Related Macular Degeneration. I asked Dr. McGuinn to explain the design of the study. The idea uh, for the study was to look at the relationship between cholesterol-lowering medications, particularly uh, statins, and their association with age-related macular degeneration. Um, The study itself was a case control study using data from the ERIC study, which stands for Atherosclerosis Risk in Communities Study, uh, which is a prospective population-based cohort study that has been going on since the early 90s. we were able to use this data set, this particular study, for our purposes because they had information both on the use of cholesterol-lowering medications and at one point during the follow-up, they actually took fundus photographs of these participants. Um, the advantage of using this particular uh, data set for this analysis is that it had approximately 16,000 participants in it, and most of the studies to date on the relationship between statins and AMD have been relatively small. Can you tell me what the duration of the study was? 
the, the duration of, of Eric itself was approximately 10 years, I believe. Um, we obtained the data, um, uh, obviously, retrospectively. Um, so our, our look at this particular question uh, encompassed approximately a year. Uh, but the follow-up in Eric uh, went on for approximately 10 years. The parameter that you were looking at was who had early and who had late macular degeneration, and obviously who didn't have any. Uh, how did you define macular degeneration for the purposes of the study? The, um, the uh, participants in ERIC, as I mentioned, had uh, uh, retinal photographs taken, and they were uh, graded um, at the University of Wisconsin using uh, their grading system. Um, uh, they were in the database. They were classified as early AMD, late AMD. So, for the purposes of our analysis, early AMD uh, was uh, the presence of soft drusen alone, uh, uh, RPE depigmentation alone, and/or a combination um, of these characteristics. Late AMD was the presence of signs of exudative AMD or pure geographic atrophy. So, the standard definitions uh, used in epidemiologic studies. Which group was your control group, and what defined your control, what defined the independent variable for this study? Uh, this was a, our particular analysis was a case control study. The cases, um, as I mentioned, were, were those who had AMD, uh, either early or late, and the controls were free of AMD, according to the fundus photographs. The risk factors or independent variables of interest were the use of um, any cholesterol-lowering medication. Um, and that could include statins. It could include uh, any other cholesterol-lowering medications. Unfortunately, Eric did not provide us explicit information on statins alone versus uh, other potential medications. So we were only able to look at that class of drugs um, we refer to as cholesterol-lowering medications. Are there other studies that had looked at similar sorts of questions? Oh yes, yes, there are. We mentioned in the in our in this particular paper, um, uh, I believe seven other studies wherein this association has been addressed. So this is not a new question. One of the large studies that you mentioned in the paper was one that you had participated in, in which there had been, I think, more than five thousand um, people studied as the as as your study population. Um, what were the findings of? some of these previous studies? Yeah, uh, you mentioned our particular study, which was published in the British Journal of Ophthalmology in 2003. And here we looked at, also in a case control format, um, the relationship between AMD. And here we had information on statin use explicitly. Um, this was a population of men uh, seen at the VA hospital here in Birmingham. And we found a uh, about a 70% reduced risk of AMD associated with statin use. The results of the other studies are very heterogeneous. Um, there are a fair number of studies um, from Wisconsin, from the Netherlands, um, from Australia, and those studies have generally produced null associations. Um, there has been one other study from the UK which found a protective effect similar to the one um, in our original publication in 2003. So uh, there, there are as many studies suggesting a null effect as there are suggesting a protective effect. Now this study was certainly the largest of the studies that you've, that, that has looked at this question. Mm -hmm. um, what, what were the uh, findings from the study in this most recent paper? 
Uh, what we found was that individuals who had a history of uh, cholesterol-lowering uh, medication use had about a 20% reduced risk of AMD, um, and that this risk, this reduced risk, uh, persisted even after adjusting for a variety of potential confounding characteristics, age, gender, race, um, uh, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, smoking, alcohol consumption, etc. When you looked at the two populations subsequently, the population who developed macular degeneration and, of course, the much larger population who did not, were there any differences in serum lipids? Um, we did not necessarily, we did not see any significant differences in the groups with respect to HDL, LDL, cholesterol, total serum cholesterol, um, et cetera. And this is fairly consistent with the literature. There's, there's actually been a fair number of studies on the relationship between um, cholesterol and AMD. And more studies than not suggest uh, that there's no association. Do you think that the effect of statins with respect to macular degeneration and cholesterol is an effect that's local or a one that's more seen in the serum levels? Do you follow what I'm saying? I do. I do follow. I do follow. I've answered this question many, many times. And the, the, most, the most correct answer that I, I can give is I don't know. Um, statins do a lot of different things. Uh, among them is reducing uh, serum cholesterol levels. They also have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, they do a variety of systemic, they have a variety of systemic effects. Um, is, is the effect, if there is a true effect, local or the result of some systemic lowering of cholesterol? Um, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that. There are a variety of uh, hypotheses as to how they could produce an effect. Clearly, there's cholesterol present, um, as research has demonstrated, um, in the eye, um, and whether this use of statins reduces uh, the, the presence of that, or if we believe AMD is a result of some sort of inflammatory process and the statins are acting on that, um, these are all viable hypotheses, and, and people really haven't done much investigation as to which of those is, is most plausible. Now, the macular degeneration group was demographically a little bit different from your control group. Mm -hmm. The macular degeneration group was a little bit older, and although both groups were mostly women, the disparity between genders was a little bit less in the macular degeneration group. I'm just wondering if you, if you want to comment on this, and when you controlled for those variables, if the effect of the statin still came through. It did. I mean, as you mentioned, there were some demographic uh, differences, and this wasn't a clinical trial, and, and so those sorts of differences uh, can be anticipated. Um, fortunately, epidemiologic methods allow us to basically look at this association independent of any of those characteristics. And what we saw was that as we adjusted for the potential confounders and basically uh, made these two groups, the, the cases and the controls equivalent, uh, we saw the association get stronger, um, a clear evidence of confounding by these characteristics. And again, it's not surprising. Uh, the, the relationship between um, age and AMD is, is well known. The relationship between race and AMD is well known. And the relationship between gender and AMD is, is fairly well documented. So 
it was important to have that information, and once we accounted for it, um, that's really when the association made its presence known. From a clinical standpoint, if we have patients who have a strong family history of macular degeneration but don't have signs of it clinically, in the absence of other cholesterol problems, would you recommend that these patients be put on statins, or would you recommend that statins should be given more of a consideration for people who are otherwise on the borderline for it from a cholesterol standpoint because of the family history of macular degeneration? I think at the present time, any any benefit to patients with AMD associated with statin use is going to come from the fact that they're taking the statins for their cholesterol. Um, I don't think we're at a point where AMD, or rather statins, should or could be used um, to really prevent this particular condition. I don't, I don't think we know enough about if the effect is, is real or not, and if it is, what the mechanism is. Um, fortunately, statins are fairly ubiquitous in this population. Um, so if there is any real benefit, it's likely that uh, people are getting it as a byproduct of treatment for another disease. Um, given that being said, given their safety, given their efficacy for um, the treatment of high cholesterol, I think there is room for a clinical trial, though, to really put the issue to rest and uh, demonstrate you know, whether there is or is not an effect of statins on AMD. And as I said, this, this is a, a medication for which people uh, use. It's safe. It's effective. Um, and I think that lowers the bar a little bit in terms of uh, asking the question, should we pursue a clinical trial in this area? Uh, we have another study coming out where and we looked at AMD and statin use again, and we found a null effect in this particular data set. So even in our own work, um, we're seeing you know, heterogeneous sets of results. Um, so, you know, I guess the, the answer, if I were to you know, sort of put something out there for people to, uh, to, to, to listen to, I would say, you know, the story isn't over yet. Um, no one ha has a clinical trial in the works. Um, there are plenty of epidemiologic studies like this, though, coming through the mill. And um, I think as the literature accumulates, it's going to be, you know, harder and harder to really determine what the real the relationship might be. And that's why I think as these studies come out and we get some positive, we get some negative, we get some null findings, um, it's going to start turning up the volume on the need to do a clinical trial. Jerry, thank you very much. Not a problem. Gerald McGuinn is Associate Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology and in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's the author of The Use of Cholesterol-Lowering Medications and age-related macular degeneration in the March 2005 Ophthalmology Journal. Keratorefractive surgery has become a part of mainstream ophthalmology. Once performed by only a handful of cornea surgeons, LASIK is quickly becoming one of the most popular elective procedures in the United States, with 1.8 million procedures performed last year alone. Although the great majority of these patients obtain satisfactory outcomes, some require spectacles or contact lenses to achieve their desired visual acuity. Contact lens fitting after keratorefractive surgery is challenging on several fronts. The post-surgical cornea is often oblate, that is to say, it is flatter centrally than in the mid-periphery. 
Many of these patients have dry eyes, and none is happy to be back in contact lenses. My next guest, Erwin Siegel, works with some of the most difficult of these patients. I asked him to describe his seminal case. About 20 years ago, a post-RK patient was referred to me by a puzzled colleague. The patient had about a minus 3 diopter residual post-op refraction. First of all, my friend uh, couldn't fit the uh, patient with contact lenses because of the difficulty in finding a lens that wouldn't move around very much when the patient blinked. The contact lens power that seemed to be required was minus 9, which also seemed curious, but that was an obvious optical consequence of the uh, cornea-shaped, convex-shaped tear lens between the back of the contact lens and the uh, flat-as-a-board anterior corneal curvature. Fitting a lens to this weirdly-shaped cornea was very difficult. With a lab tech that I knew, I started to design what's now called a reverse-curve lens configuration. What I missed at the time was that uh, reverse-curve lenses were actually used to control myopia in a um, procedure called orthokeratology, a fad which died out and only recently has been revived. But even with a great amount of trial and error, getting as much of the cornea, uh, normal cornea, opposing the contact lens as possible, and that would, of course, be the secondary uh, curve of the contact lens, the lens was still not stable on the eye. At that time, the DKs uh, that were available were not high enough to permit macro-sized lenses, which would obviously have been better. I then tried the hybrid soft-perm lens, which had been around since the 1960s, not much used because of the low DK, great expense, and poor durability, which translates to frequent replacement. But it was received gratefully by the patient. I believe it was the first time this lens had been used for such a purpose. The case that you mentioned involved a patient who had undergone radial keratotomy, which is now really very rarely done. Do you have similar problems facing patients after LASIK surgery? Basically, yes. The flattened corneal apex, though not as dimpled as the RK, uh, post-RK patients, produce the same fitting problems. The lens must bear on areas outside the LASD zone. Is there a particular instrument that helps you after LASIK and fitting patients with contact lenses? Yes. Uh, Topography is a great aid for delineating the LASD area from normal surrounding cornea. You can zoom in on the central corneal area using the topographic expanding scale and get a very accurate measure of the flattened corneal uh, central area. This is particularly important when you're measuring a reverse curve lens uh, where where it's rather important to have a very good apposition of the lens to the corneal surface. Can you tell me what type of contact lenses have proved most useful for correcting patients after LASIK surgery? There are only two types of lenses I've found useful. One, of course, I've mentioned is the soft perm lens produced these days by SIBA. Uh, One could only hope this lens can be redesigned and made more sturdy and with a higher decay material. Though SIBA doesn't seem very interested in doing it, this is a very comfortable lens for patients and despite the very great expense 
uh, involved uh, to the patient, a lot of them really do not find themselves amenable to any other type of lens. I've been more interested these days in designing uh, reverse curve lenses, which are readily available now because almost all the companies make ortho-K lenses, which are very flat in the center contact lenses of a very high DK because these patients wear them overnight and take them out during the day, which wasn't possible in the old days. And this, I find, a very good choice. They can be made very large because of the very high DK and are quite comfortable because they are uh, fitting very close to being under the lids like soft lenses. But don't forget that uh, also that many post-LASIK patients were originally lens wearers. So this is not an unusual situation for them to be in. Though having spent all the money on LASIK surgery, uh, they're a little disappointed in having to wear contact lenses. But nonetheless, they'd rather do that than glasses. I want to make one final point. It's not made very often. Very high myopes, which do not generally have a good outcome, LASIK speaking, should consider LASIK plus contact lens remediation. If you're a 14 or 15 diopter myope, it's really not possible to get a really great correction after LASIK surgery. However, with the aid of a very, very low-power contact lens after LASIK surgery, you can uh, get an easily tolerated uh, highly efficient, optically efficient uh, contact lens, and the patients are usually very happy. The majority of the patients you're fitting after refractive surgery for contact lenses, these are patients who had results that were unsatisfactory from their surgery, or these are patients who had not previously been presbyopic and are getting presbyopic now and want monovision or something like that? Most of the patients I've seen originally had the surgery because they wanted to throw away their glasses. In other words, they had a post-op response that was uh, less than adequate. In other words, they weren't fully corrected after the LASIK surgery. It had nothing to do with presbyopia. The presbyopia problem is an interesting one. I mean, how old do you do a patient and not explain that this is a, a problem? Uh, not only that, how old do you have a patient and you don't say anything about the difficulty in getting IOL measurements after LASIK surgery? Do you find these patients difficult to work with because they're coming to you disappointed to, to start out with? And frankly, contact lenses for all of these patients is, is a second choice. It's not what they came in for. And some of them had worn contact lenses previously. Yeah, they all come in a little bit disappointed with the original procedure, but they're all kind of desperate to get back to at least where they were. If they were contact lens wearers, they don't mind wearing a very, very low-power contact lens to get them back to square one on this. Is it commonly a problem that patients who had worn contact lenses prior to LASIK who are now fit for contact lenses after LASIK are less tolerant to those contact lenses than they were in their initial contact lenses that they were preoperative? They're, they're more tolerant because most of the corneal nerves have been destroyed in the, in the LASIK procedure, and they're all very keen on uh, getting their vision restored uh, so that no one knows they're wearing glasses. Basically, it's a matter of ego than anything else. They're not going to wear glasses under any circumstances because they wouldn't have taken the operative route to begin with. So they're all very keen on having some sort of remediation uh, where their friends and relatives don't know they have to wear glasses. 
do you try to fit some of these patients with soft contact lenses first, or you jump right to hard contact lenses with most of these patients? I, originally, I tried thick contact lenses, uh, thick soft lenses, uh, the sort of lenses that uh, are actually used for keratoconus patients. Um, and there are a couple of companies that make very heavy uh, soft lenses. I just didn't find that they were very efficient uh, in terms of consistent vision. Uh, for whatever reason, it was they were difficult to fit. But some of them work quite well. What you have to remember is that like any soft lens, they're a custom lens. They're expensive. They rip. Uh, they're not as expensive as the soft perm lens, but they're problematic, and like any other soft lens, they usually produce many more problems than a gas permeable lens in terms of infection, uh, decay, which is a real problem with a very thick soft lens unless they make it out of a material that does so far has not seemed to exist. Now, with the new there are some new materials which have not been used yet, and these are the new hydrogel, silicon hydrogel materials. Um, this might be a very good experiment for some companies to try making a thick lens out of these silicon hydrogels, which have very high decays, uh, higher than most RGP materials. But right now, it's such a niche market that I doubt if any of the companies are going to invest any kind of money in uh, trying to design and sell a lens. One of the advantages of this sort of material for these patients is that after LASIK, patients very frequently have dry eyes. Sometimes it's transient, sometimes it's longer term. And of course, lenses that incorporate silicone into their material require less in the way of lubrication for the patient's tear film than other soft contact lenses do. But of course, you, you still have the problem of the topography translating through the soft contact lens. I think that uh, the new silicon hydrogels have to be, imp I think that they have to be improved because I have found that uh, with one uh, type of silicon hydrogel, which I've used, that the uh, dryness problem has not been uh, fully alleviated. But now there are at least three companies making some kind of silicon hydrogel material, and I think that ultimately they may solve this problem, and I think you're absolutely right. This might be a very nice material to use, and it'd be a hell of a lot easier to fit post-op LASIK patients with a soft lens that would correct the vision. These uh, hydrogel, uh, silicon hydrogel lenses uh, have a uh, higher tensile strength usually than the usual soft lens materials also, so its innate uh, structural stability may go a long way to uh, help the optical situation too. They won't flop around so much, they won't adhere to the cornea, they won't configure to the really weird shape of the cornea after LASIK surgery. How soon postoperatively do you feel comfortable fitting patients? the way uh, patients are referred to me, I rarely see a patient that's been operated on for less than a year. Usually the patients have gone other routes or um, just decided to wear glasses and then gave up on the glasses. So they're not referred to me very quickly. They go back to the uh, surgeon for uh, four, five, six months. They try secondary remediation, LASIK type of re remediation, which may help in many cases. But I don't, I've rarely seen a patient that has uh, been newly operated on. Do you see in this patient population people who were only mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic from a subclinical dry eye who become symptomatic once you fit them with contact lenses and then need plugs or some other sort of therapy for the dry eye? Dry eyes I don't find to be a really 
a big problem. Uh, most of my patients, I said, don't come to me very quickly. It's just as well they don't because things change after surgery, and one shouldn't leap about after surgery trying to get a quick fix when, in fact, all you need is a little bit of time uh, elapsing. I don't find that the uh, dry eye problem is a really limiting problem as far as contact lens wear is concerned because I've been tending towards the gas permeable lenses anyway, and they don't cover uh, as much a area of the cornea than a soft lens does. So I don't expect that patient would be hard put to keep a RGP lens reasonably comfortable on the eye. Erwin Siegel is a research professor and professor emeritus of ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine. Do you have any questions for Dr. McGuinn or for Dr. Siegel? Would you like to add anything to the conversation? Please call our listener response lines in the United States dial 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Listeners who use Skype, Skype JYoungMD. Those phone numbers and the Skype address can be found at our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.